this is the first week in Advent. In your prayer book, if you want to follow the traditional pattern, the collect for the first uh, Sunday of Advent is traditionally said every day in Advent. So if you're looking for one prayer to say every day, do that Advent prayer. And it really, it really mirrors um, the, the Colic for Ash Wednesday that we say every day in Lent. All right, let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty, to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So one of the things that we would like to, over the years, share with you are the traditional ways in which the church has taught. And the church has always been, over the years, very good at giving lists. And I like lists. I like categories of things. I know John likes lists as well. So in the, in the um, in traditional um, uh, devotional books for Christians, you'll find pages and pages and pages of lists. Like, how many Beatitudes are there? Eight. eight. There are eight Beatitudes. And, you know, you can find, for instance, when you would have um, like a, a four-budded cross, or budded cross will have like, you know, eight little circles on them, and you can, there'll be meditations on the eight Beatitudes and all that. Um, how many theological virtues are there? Theological virtues are, are virtues that are uh, given to, grace that's given to us that point us toward God, and they're given to us in baptism. You know them, you just didn't know they're theological virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Okay, how many cardinal virtues are there? <laughs> Four. Right, can we name the cardinal virtues? Prudence, Prudence temperance, temperance, fortitude. And you said justice. Very good, Amy. Yes, justice. So, uh, so those are the those are the four cardinal. Why are they called cardinal virtues? The card the cardinal is the means hinge. These are the hinges in which all the other virtues flow. So, you have four cardinal virtues. You have um, three theological virtues. You have eight beatitudes. You have seven dwarfs. You have all these sort of things. <laughs> seven deadly sins. Seven, seven deadly sins. Seven contrary virtues. Mm -hmm. Um, so tons and tons and tons and tons of things um, for these. And so also in this would be the traditional teaching in the season of Advent of the four last things. Four last things are in order, death, judgment, heaven, hell. That's going to be our Advent um, formation. So Catherine said, why the skull? I said, we're talking about death tonight. She says... I prefer life. <laughs> so do I. But the reason we prefer life is because we first have understood death. And so really focusing on these four last things sounds very, very depressing um, in the season of Holly Jolly Christmas. But it actually makes Christmas um, that much more meaningful when we understand that, that when we come on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 
Notice I said, we come on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year. <laughs> is that um, we're not simply commemorating or reliving an event that happened in the past, and that's where it stays. But we celebrate the first coming of our Lord Jesus so that we may be prepared to embrace his second coming. So the two are connected. So the season of Advent, if we take it seriously, is all about the second Advent. Remember, Advent um, means to come, to come to, the coming of our Lord Jesus in glory uh, to judge us. So it's a time where we, um, and when you look at this coming week, where we have you know the, the ministry of John the Baptist, calling people to, to think on their sins, repent of their sins, calling people broods of vipers, and so on and so forth. Um, it is good to meditate on the four last things so that we may embrace the fullness of life here and then uh, long for life everlasting. So it's not meant to be a downer, quite the opposite. But we can't fully enjoy life and cling to life until we first face the alternative and reject the alternative which is death. So tonight is death. The Father's going to start us off with Scripture. Can I a question, Debbie? Yeah. Okay. Stretching your arm. I'll just relax. No, that, that's fine. Um, so before we jump into Romans 5, um, just to kind of give more background on, on why, why death, judgment, heaven, hell, and advent, why not in, in Lent or another penitential season, I, I preached on this on Sunday because we're always talking about the two comings of Jesus Christ in advent. Advent means arrival or coming. Jesus comes in the manger, and then we also remember the second coming of Jesus, when he will come to judge the living and the dead. So we are always uh, looking backwards toward the incarnation, toward Christmas, and, and forward toward the second coming of Jesus. And so we always kind of live in between that moment. And so it is, it is absolutely fitting for us to think about when Jesus will come again and he will judge the quick and the dead and, and we have to die and, and that is part of that process of coming face to face with Jesus again. So that is, that is why Advent is a, is a fitting time to talk about um, death and then all the things that happen after we die. Tonight we're going to look at Romans 5, specifically verse 12, um, and, and a couple verses around it. And one of the things that we're going to stress is this relationship between Adam and Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ and, and all of us. Um, and one of the claims that you'll see Paul make, and that we'll kind of expound on a little bit more, is Jesus becomes the new center or foundation of humanity. Um, this is something that we've said many, many times, but Jesus is the center for not just all of the rest of Scripture, so that we look back in Genesis and see Jesus in the Garden of Eden even, or in the um, fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we also look in our own lives and see Jesus at the center of everything. And so that is kind of the point that Paul's making. So keep those two relationships in mind, Jesus and his relationship to all of us, and then Jesus and his relationship to Adam. So let's look at Romans 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 13, 14, and we'll pause and talk about them. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Okay, pause there. Verse 12, the first verse I read, that really is 
Paul's thesis. Death comes from sin. Sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and then because of that, death spreads to all. So Paul's doing two things. Um, He is saying everyone is under this um, natural end of death. That is, that is a, a, a expectation that we all have. Death spreads to all because all of sin. But then he also says that the sin of Adam and the death that results because of it spreads to every single person. So there is a sense in which, and this is where we can kind of get into some questions of original sin, that idea of, of the sin that we almost carry with us from the day of our birth. What does that mean? And Paul is kind of introducing us to that, that somehow we are bound up with Adam in his sin that he made in the garden. And he goes on to say that our sin is not, is not exactly like, like his. It's not as if we are guilty of eating the apple, but we have the same sickness. We have the same effects of sin's entrance into the world. And then notice what Paul also says, death is a result of sin. And so briefly, death is not not natural for humans. And we'll, we'll say death is natural. And what we mean by that is it's a given. It's but common to all. Common to all. But in our, in our created state, in our perfect created state, death, death was not in the picture. Death comes about because of sin. And then because of that, now we can get into conversations about Jesus Christ. So what Paul will do here, and what he's, what he's doing here with this comparison to Adam... Um, and then here is verse 15. Let me go ahead and read that to introduce this comparison of Jesus and Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So Adam is the means by which sin and death spread to every single person. We have that in common. We trace our biological lineage back to these, this, this one person. Um, but we also trace our, our sinful nature back to the actions of Adam. Jesus Christ shows up as the new Adam, the second Adam. Adam disobeys God. Jesus Christ submits to the Father and, and offers himself for all of us. He, he undoes Adam's disobedience. And so what does he do then? He undoes the, the relationship between sin and death. Death is no longer a judgment or a punishment for sin, but Jesus actually redeems death. He takes away its sting and kind of uh, changes our focus around it. So let me pause there and say, does that, does that make sense? That when we say Jesus is the new Adam, that's what we're talking about. Adam was the basis for all of our sin and death and the sinful nature that we have. Jesus shows up and kind of, undoes that. And he says, I am the new Adam. I am actually now the beginning of every person's nature because we all find our new, fulfilled, graceful nature in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So we can kind of follow this train of thought in in a bunch of different ways. And that's kind of what Paul does throughout the book of Romans is he is, he is taking this idea that Jesus undoes the disobedience of Adam and sets up something new in its place. And then he, he kind of uh, extrapolates that in all sorts of ways. So one way that we can, we can think about it is baptism. Um, in our baptism, what do we say? We are cleansed from this stain of original sin. 
Well, how does that actually happen? What do we say when people are baptized? What, what is it? It is a union with who? Christ, Christ and specifically Christ's what? Yeah, death, burial. We are, we are buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism is an experience of our own death, a death to our sinful nature, a death to our old self, as Paul says. And we emerge out of the water in our new self. That's why we have countless analogies that compare the waters of baptism to um, like a womb in a tomb. We are, we are brought into the water as if it is our tomb, but then it becomes the waters of new life, a womb that gives birth to our new, our new self. And so our baptism is actually being united with the death of Jesus Christ. So because of that, Jesus has redeemed death. So now our own death that we look toward in the future is actually now in relationship to the death of Jesus Christ. So no longer is it a punishment for sin as it was for Adam and Moses, but now it is actually an opportunity for what? For new birth, for resurrection. That is proved by Jesus' own resurrection and his own death. So the life of Jesus is kind of always our, um, always our focus when we ask questions about our own life. Why are we born? Well, why was Jesus Christ born? To give life to all people. We are born so that we can be united with Jesus Christ and experience fulfilled life. Well, why, why do we die? Well, why did Jesus Christ die? To demonstrate power over death. Why do we die? So that Christ can demonstrate power over death through our death. Why are we baptized? Jesus Christ was baptized. Why is a demonstration, as a cleansing, a removal of that punishment for sin that we see back in Genesis, and to give us new life, so that death is now an opportunity as a witness for the resurrection. Um, all of our life events find their fulfillment in, in the life of Jesus Christ, including our death. Pause there and say, is there anything, anything you want to interject? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, not in opposition, but I've got... Yeah. Um, so let me just, let me just, it's almost like we're cutting grass here and you kind of go back yeah. and go back. I'm going to go back just a little bit and um, not take a different slant, but to say, um, why is there death? First of all, is question number one. So the Book of Wisdom is one of those mm-hmm. books in the Apocrypha. And... I, one of the things I'd love for you to do is, and may, maybe you have a fine relationship with the Apocrypha, I'd love for you, for you to be more comfortable with those books in the Apocrypha because they were in the original King James Version, uh, they've been in our, they're in our lectionary, it's completely in, in our, um, our cycle of scripture reading, and the Apocrypha, these are, these are Greek versions of the, of the Old Testament that our Lord New and read, and so for instance, this this is an aside. Uh, when does tradition say that Jesus was born? What time of day? Night. night. Why? Because silent night. Yeah. You know, blah 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 blah. Oh holy night. Oh, holy night. Yeah. The tradition comes from the Book of Wisdom. It comes from chapter eighteen, um, verse fourteen. Let me just read it to you real quick and see if this sounds familiar. For while the gentle silence enveloped all things. And night in its swift course was now half gone. What is half gone of night? Midnight. Midnight. The, thy all-powerful word leaped from heaven, from a royal throne, into the midst of the land that was doomed. Huh. Right? That's where the tradition comes from. Interesting. Right. So the point is, it's saturated in our, in our faith. So the Book of Wisdom 
is something we also read uh, at funerals. And the, the portion we read uh, at funerals, uh, we read at Kenny's funeral. We, we talk about, for instance, how that um, for the uh, to the unrighteous, but the souls of the righteous are in the hands of God and no torment will ever touch them, but in the eyes of the foolish they seem to have died. Remember that reading? But that's chapter 3. Chapter 1 says this. God did not make death, and he does not delight in the death of the living, for he created all things that they might exist, and the generative forces of the world are wholesome, and there is no destructive poison in them. And then um, chapter 2, but through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. So this is going with Romans 5. Mm -hmm. What is the nature of death and what is our relationship with death? Is it a part of the created um, order for us or our destiny? No. Has death always been a part of our reality? Yes, because we've always rebelled um, from the love of God and chosen our own way other than God. So we have chosen our own weakness and chosen our own destruction. But God did not create our death in doing that. So the other thing I would just want to say in, in going with that, in going back to Romans 5, is if you go a little bit further uh, in verse 20, it says, Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we'll come back to verse 20 in a second, but simply to say, how do we understand original sin? You may watch your people on social media who will make a caricature of like St. Augustine and say that Christians believe that original sin is passed through biological transmission and the, you know, in the act of procreation and all that sort of stuff. So basically what the theologians did is they understood that everyone Everyone has a bent toward their own um, destruction. And, and theology is faith-seeking understanding. We know that's true. We're just trying to understand how that happens. That's what that is. And so sometimes we make statements that are more helpful than others. How do we understand the fact that all of us, while we did not participate in um, the rebellion and the Garden of Eden, but yet we all are living in that reality, how do we understand that? I think COVID, again, gives us a helpful point of departure. I don't care what you think the origin of COVID was. We don't really know exactly. But let's just say it was, it was manufactured in a laboratory and there was a spill. Let's just say that for the sake of argument. Or let's just say it was a bat that someone ate. Whatever. But let's just let's make it easy and say it was laboratory, right? The person who, who mishandled that, um, that virus is responsible for it, Right. That was the, it was their transgression, but yet we're paying the price for it. Did we drop it? No. Did we put it in the water system? No. Whatever. I mean, you, you know, we didn't do it, but yet we're all suffering from it, um, either from the disease itself uh, or also just from the restrictions. No one's exempt from COVID. No one. We may think we are or try to be, but we're not. I think original sin, in some way, that's a helpful analog because we, we are not Adam. But we are we're we're living in the in the ramifications of it, mm -hmm. and so we and and those are now the rules in which every human being must play by, and what are the rules that have now been established uh, with Adam's transgression? What happened? What was the consequence of Adam's transgression? Just simple. What was the consequence? Death. Death. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we know we're going to die, and the moment we know we're going to die, 
is the moment we become anxious about everything. And the moment we become anxious about our life, we start sinning, basically. And so what you see in verse 20 says, and you've heard me say this before, um, laws and rules are only made, I think this is a fair universal statement. Maybe you can think of an exception, but don't tell me now. Raw, um, laws and rules are only made in response to something. So, for instance, my favorite, my easy example is the speed limit is 55 because human experience has said 95 is a bit too fast. <laughs> Why do we know that? Because someone went too fast and something tragic happened. So, you know what? 55 is good. We're told as little children, don't run with scissors. Not because someone sort of imagined what might happen. It's because someone ran with scissors and something bad happened, right? All the times we were told that might put your eye out comes from the fact it puts someone's eye out at some point. So the point is, you don't know you're going too fast until now you see a sign that says it's 55 and you're going 75. The law is similar. Is unless we have some objective standard, we don't know we're breaking the law, God's law. That's what the Ten Commandments is, um, what, what the Ten Commandments are. So when verse 20 says, law came in to increase the trespass, that's not saying that God wants us to trespass. Is that now that we know what the standard is, now we say, holy smokes, I've been breaking more than I actually thought. Because what happens is, we begin to deny our culpability. We deny our sin, and then ultimately, we deny the fact that we are mortal and we're going to die. And so denial of death is one of the great, the great um, spiritual ailments that we must confront. So what, what the remedy is, um, that, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more through Jesus Christ. So now that we've discovered our brokenness, that we can't keep any of the law, we have the merits of Jesus Christ, which with the overabundance of grace, and now we are more aware of that. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So here's, let me finish, here's the vicious cycle of original sin and the, and the role of death, is that death came into the world through sin. Now that we know about death, now we sin. Now that we sin, death becomes more a part of our culture, constantly. Uh, and the more it becomes a part of our culture, the more we're anxious about it. The more we're anxious. You see where this goes? It's a mm -hmm. vicious cycle that gets more and more intense the deeper and deeper we go when we deny um, our own mortality uh, and, we, and we begin to live in fear in it. So the remedy is not to run away from death. And every great mythological story has this, right? What did Luke Skywalker do? You know, go down to the dark place and sort of face the reality of it so then he can face the, the fear and then overcome it. But we don't overcome that fear. We unite ourselves with Jesus Christ, who's gone to the place that terrifies us the most, which is the grave, and he comes back and says, do not be afraid, and we trust and cling in him. So while we will die, and we'll talk about why we will still die in a moment, while this will be us at one point, we have great confidence what the Eucharistic prayer says, in death life is changed, not ended. Mm -hmm. We will be in the dust, yes, that's not the end. How do we know that? Because someone has come back from the grave and said this is not the end and changed the course of human history. To wrap it up, this is just straight from the next chapter, uh, chapter 6 in Romans. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Jesus frees us from being slaves to sin. What is a slave to sin? It is a slave to the effects of sin, death. Being enslaved to sin is being fearful of death. Jesus Christ undoes that. He separates those two so that we do not fear death. Now, the last, the last point we'll make is just a brief um, point about physical death, spiritual death. You, you may have heard this before, but how do we understand those two? I think the best way to understand it is to look at Wisdom 113, God did not create death. God does not delight in the death of the living. And then look at the psalmist's words. Precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his servants. How do we put those in conjunction with each other? The only way that death, our physical death, is precious in the sight of the Lord is by looking at it through the lens of Jesus' death. That God does not create death, but it is transformed so that the psalmist can even say it's, it's precious in the sight of the Lord. Because it's, it's his own servants who do not fear death, who know that it is not the end of our actual existence. It's simply a change in our progression to him. That's, that's the, the mystery of the resurrection. That is what we are always living into, um, is that change from, from death being this, this punishment of sin to somehow being our union with Jesus Christ, so that we look beyond what is on the other side. Yeah, but think about how, real quick, how we... How we we rejoice in this in, um, I, I said this in the Zoom uh, with All Saints Margaret Street. I think Hollywood, I think movies, this, that is our, our cultural currency. It's, 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 our, it's our modern mythology. We no longer speak of sort of Zeus and Apollo and things like that. We think of movies. What are our favorite movies? Our favorite movies are the downtrodden, underdog, beaten up, rocky who suffers and is just absolutely slaughtered until the very end and he pulls out a victory. Mm-hmm. We like chariots of fire. We like those like Hoosiers, those kinds of movies where there's struggle and then they come through that struggle to embrace something about themselves they didn't know. Final comment before we go into the TV is that we'll talk about Memento Mori in a minute, but um, to connect this to um, Romans 5, the skull at the bottom of the painting in the church is Adam's skull. So I won't, I won't go into the, into the long explanation of the tradition, but think about this. You see the blood on the cross coming down the wood. It now covers the skull because Jesus Christ is the new Adam. So as sin entered the world through one man, then redemption enters the world through one man, Jesus, whose blood now covers the skull of Jesus. And so that's why that, that skull is at the bottom of the cross. And whenever you see that in crucifixion scenes, that's what that means. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. I'm going to take off the mic for a second. And I want you to tell me, I practiced this beforehand so that I know how to do it correctly. If this sounds familiar to you, this tune. Is that familiar? It does to Catherine Lowe. Does to Catherine Lowe because they play in a Georgia Bulldog games. Every third down. <laughs> A sense of um, imposing, imposing doom or destruction. Those first four notes are the beginning of the Dies Irae, which is a how old? 
It's old. You've heard it's it's ancient. You've you've you heard you heard every All Souls. Yes. You've heard this. Yeah. So it is it is a a Gregorian chant that was used in funerals. Um, and not to go into, I wrote down briefly just some interesting information about the actual first four notes of it. Um, they are the first two notes. There is a half step between them which is the tightest interval you can have. And if you play them at the same time, they're what's called dissonant. Um, it is not pleasing to your ears. It is kind of supposed to jerk you a little bit. It's supposed to be a little uncomfortable. The second two notes are a minor third. Now, what does all this mean? It means that half of those first four notes, two of the four, are in a minor key, which has always been... Um, Used for doom, used for sadness, for, um, you know, destruction, um, and that kind of stuff. I mean, partially because the Gregorian chant used it for funerals, and that became part of people's cultural understanding of 900 music. years old. Yeah, so 900 years old. Okay, so long before, you know, you could walk over and play it on a piano, the only time you would hear that were when people would chant it at funerals. So I'm going to show you a, a, a quick two-minute clip in a second, but basically the DSE Ray, those first four notes became um, very, very popular, and they were adapted, and when musical instruments came out, they were used, and people knew that tone and associated it with death. So it became used in, um, um, what's, the, what's the term I'm looking for, in all sorts of musical pieces. It obviously was used for the DSE Ray, for Requiem Masses, and then as I'll show you in a second, it started getting adapted in movies. And so the point I want to make here with this video clip I'm going to show is that this religious idea of death has pervaded all of culture, and you may not even be aware of it. So, And we've lost that is the point. We, we've yes. lost it. Yes. It used to be everywhere, and to the point that when the Georgia Bulldogs are on defense, and it's truly, go watch the Georgia team, third down, they're on defense, they're playing the DSE Ray, the band is, say, day of wrath impending, yeah. because you're not going to make the, you're not going to make this down. And it's silly, but... But it, know, it works. If you know what's going on, it's perfect. So, it's going to be a bunch of examples of movies, um, and it'll replay what I'm about to play, but keep this in your mind and listen for it. That's what you're listening for, and you'll see. I mean, this is just a quick two-minute clip, but it really is everywhere. Close it out. I had it all queued up and everything.
realize their freedom. If not stands before me and swears his loyalty. you could pick from. So some of them blatantly obvious, like The Shining. I mean, that is just basically what I played on the piano. Some of them, they, the, the composers learn to adapt it. But the idea is the same, is that you watch these movie scenes and it makes you feel, oh, this is, this is the doom part of the movie. This is the destruction. Yes, thank you, Dwayne. Here, you're going to need this remote too. TV is needed in another room in 20 minutes. It's a hot commodity, so Dwayne's going to take it. But um, I, think, I think the interesting point about this, other than it being interesting, and it is, if you get those four notes in your head, I promise you, you will be sitting watching a movie, because I've done it, and you'll all of a sudden say, well, wait a minute, there's the DSE ray. I mean, it is used, and it has seeped into our, our cultural liturgy, Hollywood, and we associate it with death. The funny part, I think, is... So many people would say it's a little too imposing. I don't. It's too focused on death. I wouldn't want it at my funeral, but put it in a movie, and I love it. We we start humming the soundtrack, and it makes us feel like this sense of imposing doom. Um, I think we've taken the entertainment value out of the religious history of death, but we don't always like to focus on it. We don't like looking at a skull all the time but we keep the musical notation that made us remember death in the first place. There's, a, there's an interesting disconnect there. Yeah, so we're in the tradition component now. So this is my skull, and you can buy them on Amazon. <laughs> you can. It's not real, obviously. Um, it comes from the tradition Memento Mori. You ever heard Memento Mori? Beth, you heard Memento Mori? You okay, Beth? I'm a pardon. I need to separate y'all, you know? <laughs> Memento mori means remember your death. Uh, and I remember reading a book about the Carthusian monks who they'd wake up every morning and they would say to themselves, tonight I'm going to die. And that sounds very morbid, but it was liberating. There are, there are some traditions that sleep in their coffins. Yeah. It's, it sounds morbid, but if you know you're going to die, you're kind of freeing yourself from all that's superfluous, right? George Carlin used to have a bit that said, if God gave you a two-minute warning and tapped you on the shoulder said you got two minutes, what would be important? It's a very good question from a non-theologian like John, Car I mean George Carlin, but, but it makes sense. So the idea that this was part of our tradition, and why I would make the case, if you want to put the DSE ray in your funeral, I'd be very, very pleased with that, because it's making a statement, day of wrath impending, uh, and it's impending doom, but not for me, because I cling to the hope of Jesus Christ. And that we have this around us, and we understand that because it saturates every great movie that we love that has any kind of evil or darkness or death. This soundtrack is in there. I am including the soundtrack into my funeral and saying that is not the final word. Mm -hmm. 
which is a facing your own death, memento mori, I'm going to die, I'm not afraid. I, mean, I don't want it to happen tonight. I'm not afraid. Because my faith is in, is in something larger. And so when you look at a lot of uh, Christian tradition, it looks very, very macabre and morbid and um, beautiful black vestments um, that are have like skulls on them. and Or even um, you go into monasteries and you go into the crypt and it's, an, it's a necropolis. It's a city of the dead with bones stacked everywhere. It's not f- making death a fetish. It's just simply saying, this is reality. We embrace it. Uh, we're preparing for it. And it motivates us to, do, uh, to turn toward God. Death is a motivator. Again, if you have two minutes... That's motivation, um, but you, you go toward the things of light and not of um, things of darkness, which is, again, why I think, um, and we talked about this a little bit at the going away party, it's why I think wearing violet or black vestments is, a, is an important tradition to recover, which we have, because um, so often in funerals, and funerals, is, funerals are the places where we really only think about death. The problem is, in our modern funeral, death is never really acknowledged. Mm-hmm. What is the most common term of a funeral nowadays? Celebration, Celebration of life yeah. and not anything about death. As an abstraction, you go to funerals, oftentimes, you, and I'm, not, I'm not being critical, I'm just, just observing. You go to funerals, you don't see the coffin there draped in any kind of black pall. What do you see? Pictures or video of the living. I understand the pastoral role in that, but the theological and the teaching role is Let's don't even talk about it. No, let's talk about it so we're no longer afraid. Mm-hmm. Bring it is kind of what the church is saying. And so that's the power of, uh, of the DSC race. So I guarantee you now, as you drive home, you'll be humming those four notes to yourself. You really will. And thinking of, of our religious tradition, who is the best example of looking death in the face and saying, I'm not afraid, apart from Jesus Christ? It's the martyrs. What the church was built on. I mean, you have early Christian writing that that talks about the martyrs as the the stones of the churches that we build. They say the churches are built on the blood of the martyrs. There's this idea that the martyrs are the prime example of this willingness to look death in the face, to not pretend like it doesn't exist, but to actually look at it and say, it has lost its sting. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It doesn't have it anymore. Because I know that there is something beyond this. I know that this life is not my ultimate destiny. And if it is, and this is what you know, you see when you are so fearful of death, if this is all there is, live it up. Take what you can. Um, because this is it. Make it as fun as you make it as fun as you want. Why would I why would I ever engage in any act of self discipline? Why would I ever try to cultivate virtues? That's that's hard. It's much easier just to give in to my desires. Well, it's because we're, we're not only focused on the here and now, because we know that there's something that lies beyond and that that is where our actual fulfillment is. That is our eternal life that we are looking toward and that our hope is grounded in. The martyrs are the best example of that. They look death in the face and to the point where we have accounts of, of some of the early martyrs laughing as they are burned alive. I mean, it seems gruesome to us, but they are... They're rejoicing because they know that this doesn't have any power over them. Is there still suffering? Yes. Do we still mourn death? Yes. Jesus Christ cries for his friend Lazarus. There's an element at which we still recognize death as this 
unnatural interjection into what was supposed to be a perfect created order. We kind of hold those two things in tension. We mourn it. It's not supposed to be here. But thank God for Jesus Christ, who has taken away its power, who has taken away the sting. Do you remember my favorite story I've told you about St. Lawrence? Uh, the the, the yeah. snarkiest line ever, someone who was dying. So go to Asheville and go to St. Lawrence's Basilica and you see, find relics of St. Lawrence. Um, St. Lawrence was uh, grilled. Uh, he was, he was you know, killed on a grid, uh, burned on a gridiron, basically a big grill. And he said to those who were, were, were putting him to death, excuse me, could you please turn me over? I'm done on this side. It's <laughs> the best line ever. Just saying, I don't care what you are doing. Do you remember the sermon I preached? Of course you do. Do you remember the sermon I preached <laughs> when Everyone I talked does. about going to Sherilyn's uh, grandmother's uh, funeral and we were doing the, doing the committal? And there was a, a gentleman um, 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 who, who was a trucking magnet. And all these Florida gator, he's $100,000 a year to, to buy a parking spot at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium every year. And because he wanted the best parking spot, hundred grand, and he had all these Florida, you know, paraphernalia around his um, his grave. And my father-in-law said he spent a hundred thousand dollars a year to have the best parking spot. I said, my gosh, look where he's parked now, <laughs> right? Next to people who'd have a dime to their name. But materialism and, and that obsession of things is a lack of confidence in the things to come. It's completely what it is. Turn me over. I'm done on this side. I don't care. Let's talk about reason. Yes, we got 14 minutes left. So, reason. Why do we still die then? We've talked about Jesus Christ comes on earth. He defeats death. I mean, we, we, Paul says death is the final enemy to be defeated. So, obviously, our, our next natural question is, so why do we still die? And the the critique you will hear often is, so Jesus was powerful enough to give us eternal life, but wasn't powerful enough to actually remove death. So what do we do with the fact that we still die here on earth? Well, again, I think we always look to Jesus for answers to our questions about what happens to us. Why does Jesus Christ die? To demonstrate the power that he has over death. Why do we die? Because our life and death becomes a, an opportunity for Jesus Christ to demonstrate the power over death through us. Sin leads to death into the world, this, this influence and this interjection of physical death. Our bodies are not meant to be eternal. We await our resurrected bodies. These physical bodies decay. Um, this is why, you know, we, we always say, it doesn't actually matter if you're cremated or just buried in, in a thousand years, you're, you're going to be ashes and, and dust anyway. To dust we are made, and to dust we shall return. Our, our bodies are, are mortal. And this is where the, the helpful distinction between physical death and spiritual death comes into play. Physical death still abounds around us. And we mourn it because it's through our bodies that we actually experience our loved ones. When their physical bodies are gone, we, we don't have that connection with them anymore. We can't give them a hug. We can't share a meal with them. But they're not gone. Their life continues, and they await their resurrected body. Why do we hope in the resurrection? We look to Jesus Christ. What does His resurrection teach us about our ultimate hope? We will have resurrected bodies. Are they the exact same as these? No. How do we know that? Because what do Jesus' disciples say when they first meet Him? 
Who are you? They don't recognize him. It takes them a minute to realize this is this is this is Rabbi, this is the master, this is our teacher who we've been following. So we await these resurrected bodies that will be similar but different. They are absolutely physical. We believe in a bodily resurrection. That is a, a reunion of our souls and our bodies. What it actually is to be a human is to have a soul and a body joined together. That is our ultimate hope. So why do we still die? Because we still have physical bodies. These are not designed to be around forever. But we don't actually die. Our bodies decay, but our life continues. I and mean, that is kind of the hope that we carry. So there's a sense in which you can say, this is where our hope is found, we, we don't actually die. The most important death we experience is in baptism, the death of our old selves, the death of our sinful nature. And we already take on that resurrected life. And the rest of our lives is pointing to that hope of resurrection, even our death. That becomes a way to point to eternal life, to the resurrection. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible I, that means more and more to me the longer I live is in Genesis. And it's toward the end. Uh, I think it's Genesis 40. I was just thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where Joseph is speaking mm-hmm. to his brothers. And you remember that scene at the end when... They realized they've really messed up because they they sold him to slavery and for dead, and now he's the one who's running Egypt and is their salvation, right? Do you remember the line when when they were afraid that just that um, Joseph was going to put them to death and kill them? What did Joseph say to them? Do you remember? You meant it for evil, God meant it um, mm-hmm. for good. That is, I think, um, yeah, this is verse chapter fifty. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I think that is one of the most important theological keys to unlock a lot of the mysteries we have to deal with. And that means that God doesn't cause these awful things to happen to us, but God will use the awful things as instruments for our own salvation. Mm -hmm. Because God respects free will and respects the free will of all creation, but when we screw things up, God will use our mess as an instrument of salvation. So Joseph being sold into slavery now becomes the unlikely means for the deliverance of the entire people. So Mm -hmm. death is not intended by God, but God through Jesus Christ uses that which was meant for evil to be the instrument of salvation. So now death now becomes the gateway for new creation. Uh, Revelation 21, then I saw, you've heard this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had what? Passed away. Died. Mm -hmm. And the sea was no more. So that just simply means that now what what we have messed up, God has taken our mess and turned it into something beautiful as the means to new life. And of course, that image par excellence is of our Lord suffering to sanctify our suffering, mm-hmm. to die, to use death as an entrance to, to be united to Him, and then to have the path to resurrection. So we can we die in baptism, meaning we no longer we no longer pursue ourselves or live for ourselves, but we live for the Lord, uh, and we find our hope and strength in His righteousness and not our own. Um, but also we again the words in the Eucharistic prayer. We trust that when we die, when our, when our, when our breath gives out, life is changed. Mm-hmm. It's not ended. And that's what I think, and that's, that's what he means when he says we don't actually die. Yeah. I mean, we do, we, we die in the sense of a medical sense, 
but, but that's a change. But if by, if by death we mean the end of our life, not annihilation yeah. uh, is changed, not ended. And so that's why we can celebrate this because this was meant, that's why you wear the cross around your neck. It's mm-hmm. an awful sign of execution, but it's been transformed by the blood of Jesus into the way of life. Same thing with this skull. This would be the sign of hopelessness and despair. We look at it as, ah, we're all right, we're good. Yeah. Life everlasting. So we're not being macabre and morbid by talking about death and advent. No, this is what Jesus was born for. Mm-hmm. He was born to die so that in dying we might live. That's the gospel. So go to Amazon and buy a skull and <laughs> freak people out. and It's Forget a wonderful conversation piece. Questions, thoughts on the scripture or tradition like D.S.C. Ray or, or things that we do to associate with death or, or the reason part? I don't know. I don't want to uh, uh, interject a whole new like trail, but I'm just left sitting with like the relationship of shame to sin and death and spiritual death and, and all that. And I don't know if if you have like uh, in well, your head something sorted out like how shame fits into that. Well, let's talk about what shame is. Yeah. What is shame? Well, I, I mean. Shame is fear. Yeah. Right? Shame is anxiety. Recognition of sin. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I think what, what we realize is we're all sinners. And so I think we're people, I mean, we have to acknowledge we're all broken people. We're all sinners completely. And um, my, one of my favorite modern theologians, John Baer, um, we were talking about this uh, on Monday. His great line in one of his recent works says that the, the, the point of departure for theological reflection is to recognize that you're a sinner, but that you are a forgiven sinner. And that's where we begin theological reflection, is that not that we're a sinner, but that we're forgiven. So we realize that we've, we've messed up, we're broken, and, we, and of our own efforts, we're going to always choose our own destruction, always. But it's like St. Paul. I mean, St. Paul, his relationship to shame was to simply bring it out in the open. Mm-hmm. The more I fall, the more grace abounds. It's not that we sin on purpose, but I'm not trying to be the hero in this. It's Jesus Christ. So when I mess up, that's me. But, um, but the reason why I have confidence to still speak and, and, and to act and to love is because He lives in me. And, and I think that... Um, I think the, the the problem with shame is we still think we are the source of our own redemption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm if I if I, if I can fix my own problems, but I keep failing to fix my own problems, now I'm ashamed. I can't fix my problems. I can't fix it. I'm not even trying. I'm trying to live and trust in, in in the grace and mercy of the Lord. Does that does that make sense? No, it's very helpful. So shame is a sin. Shame is a symptom of the fact that we still think we can fix or we can clean up our own mess. Here's another maybe helpful way to think of it. Um, the author of Hebrews kind of uses this idea when he's contrasting the Old Testament sacrificial system with what Jesus does. And he says, you know, the old sacrifices would only cover individual actions, but they wouldn't actually clean the conscience, is the word he uses, or the heart. 
But Jesus does clean the conscience, the source of all of that. And, and the imagery he uses is the, the temple and the curtain of the Holy of Holies. And those who were unclean or impure or full of shame, I mean, is a helpful way to understand it, who had done something wrong and were undeserving of entrance into there. The author of Hebrews says he has torn that curtain in two. I mean, that's the, that's the temple curtain tearing it on, on the cross. I mean, that's the imagery being presented there. Why? Because we've done anything? No, because we, we trust in God. And that's why Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of peace, for it is the free gift of God to all who believe. When you, when you take the burden off yourself, there's, there's no place for shame anymore. So, symptom of sin, it goes along with sin, sure, all of that. And that is only taken away by full reliance on the work of Jesus Christ instead of your own self. And let me make the case for shame. Shame can be a tool to recognize you have fallen away. Mm-hmm. And that's conscience. Because mm-hmm. if you are ashamed, yeah. maybe to think about why am I ashamed. But there's a fine line, I think, of recognizing that I've, I've, I have transgressed. Mm-hmm. But then also uh, refusing to accept the forgiveness and grace of the Lord. And persisting in that once you've repented and, and sought forgiveness in doing that. But again, if I have nothing to hide... And, right. and, and, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I am absolutely a sinner. You know? But, you know, in our culture, we love to, to elevate people just to bring them down. We have no cultural concept of redemption or forgiveness mm-hmm. at all. We don't tolerate it. We refuse to tolerate it. Again, I don't mean to always give you bad news about statistics, but do you see the census in the UK that came out yesterday? Mm-hmm. For the first time ever, a minority of Christians are the minority. It dropped from 59% 10 years ago to like 47% of people profess as Christians. We're not talking about church-going actual Christians. We're talking about people who aren't lying in the census. Yeah. You know? Low bar. It's a low bar. Majority. What's that? The majority. The, it's the, the rising majority is of nothing. 37% Nuttings. say nothing. So right now, there's not a clear, you know, 51%, but you've got, you know, Muslims are like 7%, Christians are 47, nuns are 37s, and, you know, whatever, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, but I think that the point I was, was going to make on that is um, we have so lost the relationship of recognizing that when we've fallen away of our own efforts and then we can't fix ourselves, we just simply keep compounding our problems. Again, I would love to make the case, I don't mean to oversimplify things, but look at the decline in religious observance and look at the increase of just people not respecting human life on any level. And why aren't we actually just being simplistic and saying, maybe there's a connection between the two. We don't care. Because here's the thing. If, if I believe there's nothing beyond this, what is it to me if I take your life? There's no judgment. Mm-hmm. There's no objective moral principle that says you're worth living. Mm-hmm. And if you're in my way and you're, you're causing me a problem, what's the problem? I mean, that really is what the, you know, the real atheists have to struggle with. Is there any moral, you know, moral object, objectivity, uh, any moral code of law, if there's no, if there's no God who, who, who defines it? So shame, shame is good in the sense that maybe, maybe I've messed up, but we cannot persist in that if we, if we, if we cling to the, to the grace of the Lord. I think shame is also helpful interpersonally. When, you're, when, you, when you've wronged somebody near you, but there's almost no point of being ashamed in the face of God because he already, he already knows everything. I mean, that's, that's why Father Stephen and I always talk about trying to be as honest as possible in prayer because there's no reason not to be. 
You're right. only hurting yourself if you are, are hiding things from God in your prayer. He already knows it all. Don't be ashamed. He already knows it. There's no point. Just lay it all out there and accept the forgiveness that he owes. That's right. The, most, the biggest mistake you can make in prayer is to pray how you think God wants you to pray yeah. and not be honest. Because who, who are you kidding? Yeah. You know, I mean, I may pray, oh, Lord, you know, I'm kidding. I mean, just be completely honest. It's 7 o'clock. Anything else? I'll close with the collect again for today. I do encourage you to pray this every day and let it become a part of your memory because it really speaks to the things we talked about tonight. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again, in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.